Hi, everyone, and welcome to Coogee Voice. On the final episode of our Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Special Series, today we're talking with Professor David Goldstein, a co-joint clinical professor who is a senior staff specialist at the Prince of Wales Hospital, Sydney, and director of the Translational Cancer Research Network at the University of New South Wales. In 2017, Professor Goldstein was recognised at the New South Wales Premier Cancer Research Award as a leading researcher and clinician in the field of pancreatic cancer. His laboratory research has informed contemporary understanding of how the disease develops and spreads. He was recognised through this award for his instrumental role in raising the profile of pancreatic cancer within the medical, surgical and radiation oncology professions and the public. You're listening to Coogee Voice. It may be the second or third commonest cause of death within the next decade. And that's not because it's suddenly become, instead of uncommon, really common. It's because we are not doing as well with it as we are with breast and colon and even lung cancer. Surgery remains the only cure we know. Everything else we have in our toolbox keeps people alive for longer, but doesn't cure them. So the Whipple's procedure is still the cornerstone of cure. The challenge is to get more people into that box than the current one in five. Professor Goldstein, welcome to Coogee Voice. How are you going today? Very well. Just in the middle of beautiful Jugeong, in the heart of our great state near Gundagai, and it's just lovely here. So I recommend all of your listeners to put Jugeong on their map of destinations. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us this month as we dedicate the show to raising awareness of pancreatic cancer. Now, before we dive into pancreatic cancer and talking about the treatments and about the disease, can you tell us a little bit about your career and how you came to be working in this field? So my career was a bit circuitous. I wanted to be a liaison psychiatrist. So that required me to become a physician first and psychiatrist second. And I spent some time in the UK with a brilliant general physician who also did haematology and in particular haematological malignancies. And he kind of seduced me into oncology because he was just such an inspiring, inquiring mind. We did everything from psychosocial oncology to trying to understand how to treat patients better. And that just won me over. I came back and did my physician's training and my subspecialty training in oncology and again met some inspiring leaders and then just fortuitously got a chance to go to the US and spent four years doing specialist oncology research and training and it just unfolded from there and I guess the question about pancreas cancer is an interesting one when you're young and ambitious you kind of look around and say "Mm, where's an area that I can do that nobody else is doing 
and pancreas cancer suddenly reared its head. Well, first it was gastrointestinal cancers, to be really fair. And then even inside gastrointestinal, where can I do something nobody else is doing? And at that time, pancreas cancer was really an awful disease with an awful and deserved reputation, terrible reputation. And indeed, one person once said, the only hope that a pancreas cancer has is that the diagnosis is wrong. And I think that's really what moved me to want to undo that view. And I can really confidently say, as our story will unfold, that I don't think many people would, it's still an awfully intimidating, ferocious disease, but times have come a long way since that day and that state. And that's kept me going really ever since then is the drive to do something better. And then along the way, met some wonderful colleagues, in particular colleagues who are laboratory researchers, and having the good fortune to fall in with them has really what's made doing the clinical work possible as you see what could be coming next. Before I move on to my next question, I just want to say um, pancreatic cancer is an awful disease. And I think it takes a really special kind of person to want to get involved in a cancer, particularly at a time when the outcomes were so terrible. As we are going to discuss, the prognosis has changed a bit, but I have to say I think we are all incredibly thankful, particularly in the eastern suburbs where the Prince of Wales Hospital and the clinical research at UNSW has a direct impact on those who have the disease in our local community. So I do want to take this opportunity to say thank you and thank you for getting involved in a cancer that as a young, ambitious guy, that's what you saw what, and you wanted to do rather than doing maybe something which was a little bit more sexier and high profile. I have no regrets. <laughs> Good. In 2017, you were awarded the Professor Rob Sutherland AO Make a Difference Award at the 2017 Premier's Award for Outstanding Cancer Research for your work in improving our understanding and treatment of pancreatic cancer. Through this award, you were recognised for raising the profile of pancreatic cancer within the medical, surgical and radiation oncology professions and the public. What are the challenges that you've faced in raising awareness in these different fields and why do so few people know about pancreatic cancer? And, and I say this, Professor Goldstein, as someone who my family only found out about the cancer once my father had been diagnosed. So I guess there are a few things to put that into context. And I think the first is the gastrointestinal cancers in general are ones that people tend not to talk about. You know, they're icky things like the bowels and your digestion and your poo, and nobody wants to talk about that stuff. So that's part of the problem. And I think the other part of the problem for pancreas in particular is the perception somewhat deserved about it being a, a difficult cancer. So it was always about raising it as an issue and an awareness because 
The other thing is that it's not a common cancer. In fact, it's an uncommon. It's not a rare cancer, but it's not a common cancer. It's an uncommon cancer. And that's a problem. It's a problem in getting attention. It's a problem in getting research funding. What's really interesting is that as we've done better and better, and we have done better with common cancers, scientists and researchers have pivoted saying, where's another challenge for me? And they've found pancreas cancer. And more recently, an area I've also become interested in, which is this aggregated group called rare cancers, most of which are one-tenth as common as common cancers, but collectively represent about 35% of the population. The reason pancreas cancer, an uncommon cancer, has generated a lot more attention, although still not nearly enough, and we'll come to that later, is that it's going to be, there is a real chance that we're doing well enough with common cancers. It may be the second or third commonest cause of death within the next decade. And that's not because it's suddenly become, instead of uncommon, really common. It's because we are not doing as well with it as we are with breast and colon and even lung cancer. And I think that that's the other part of it. But raising awareness has actually become easier as the information has trickled through about its relative importance as a contributor to Australian cancer mortality as the next decade, as this decade rather, unfolds. Professor Goldstein, the conversation though around normalising different parts of our body, I think is a really important conversation for us to be having. Dr. Farrelly, who does vaginal cancers, a big part of our conversation around that is actually making sure that people feel comfortable having a conversation about all different parts of their body and not feeling ashamed. Because if you can't even have a conversation about your poo or about your bum or about your vagina, how are you going to feel comfortable going forward to a doctor to talk about a part of your body that you yourself feel ashamed talking about even with your closest friends and family? So how do we start to normalise these conversations? So there's an added part to this. How do we get men to feel as comfortable talking about it as women who really can be intimate with one another and their health professionals about issues related to various parts of the body? And men, that stoicism, it's not allowed, but there is help on the way. Who is becoming fashionable? You may not know this, but some of your listeners will. The microbiome, that aggregation of our normal bacteria, is now hot as anything from everything to do with the brain and emotions to your backside, like the whole body, can be influenced by an intact versus a dysfunctional microbiome. So I think we're about to become the sexiest discussion on the planet. What I'm hearing is poop jokes are going to come back in fashion and little kids are going to be leading the way with it. (laughs) Exactly right. And making their parents comfortable as we talk about bugs and bacteria and how do I make my poo healthier. Wonderful. So this leads me on then to my next question, which is in terms of understanding pancreatic cancer and treating it, 
where have we come from and where are we going? So the biggest problem we had is that all the really great researchers who were trying to do something about it thought it was just one disease. So we now know that any cancer is not one disease, but some like, say, breast and colon, may be a four or five diseases. I mean, genetically. And they start off in one place and they kind of deviate into a few different railway tracks, but relatively few. Pancreas cancer is like the London subway system. It deviates down a million tracks. Well, not a million, but 20 tracks instead of four. And because it does that, it was never realistic to think that one treatment was going to be successful. In fact, many treatments that have been called unsuccessful, hidden inside them are some successful ones. And we're only now starting because of the brilliance of the genetic scientists and the basic scientists really starting to understand those small subsets and starting to recognise what treatments might work for those small subsets so that when you aggregate them all together, you'll start to really make major changes in outcome that you could never do by keeping thinking, all we need to do is find that magic drug. It's not. It's going to be all we need to do is find out that magic biological pathway for each individual's tumour and start to work out a suite of options for each one, none of whom will be very similar to each other. So that's one place we've come from, a recognition that's not a monolithic single disease. And the second place, this is a bit of advertising for my colleagues at UNSW, which is now recognised internationally but was not at the time, is that pancreas cancer is better than almost any other cancer, but some other cancers do it partly as well, in subverting the surrounding microenvironment to be an ally. So as one of my colleagues who titled a publication a number of years ago that came out of uh, Professor Minotti Apti's lab called The Unholy Alliance, because it really is the stroma, the surrounding microenvironment nurtures and develops and stimulates the cancer to grow. And that's led to, with one of my partners in crime, Professor Phoebe Phillips, who you know well at UNSW, as well as Professor Minotti's Aptis group, to really focus on a totally different target at that time, but not so much anymore. Everybody was focusing on, you know, the answer is the cancer. Let's focus on the cancer. Let's kill the cancer. Turns out that at least in pancreas cancer, there is another target. It's called the stroma, the microenvironment. And if you can knock that target out or subvert it so it becomes hostile, reprogramming to the tumour, you can have a profound effect on that tumour, at least in the laboratory. And we are now ready and we collectively in the world, those interested in the area, are starting to test in humans those stromal reprogramming agents. And when they're ready 
and we know they're safe and which are better and which are not so good at doing that job, we will be able to combine them with all sorts of wonderful things. First of all, better chemotherapy. Second of all, incredibly sophisticated radiation. And thirdly, immunotherapy, for which we have had zero success in pancreas cancer, unlike melanoma and kidney cancer, where they are actually curing people with widespread metastatic disease, no luck in pancreas cancer, but that's partly because it's such a hostile environment for the immune system. If we could change that, we could suddenly start to use therapies that we simply don't have access to today, and that's where I think we're headed. We are headed into a permissive environment where the traditional drugs can start to have more success, and we are headed into an era of personalised medicine with very small individual groups that when aggregated together, we're going to start to make a really big difference. But it's going to have to change the mindset of regulators, the public, and the funders who want you to find one area and say, I'm going to change the nature of cancer by doing this one thing. And that's probably not the way pancreas cancer is going to work. It's going to be a multi-targeted approach that requires a truly multidisciplinary coalition of laboratory scientists of various subspecialties and clinicians of various subspecialties working together. And the biggest challenge is licensing drugs when you say, but that'll only work in 5%. And working out how that makes sense from a public health point of view, and I believe it will be possible to do that, but it's going to take time to really adjust the orientation to the one blockbuster drug to multiple mini blockbusters for smaller segments. Complicated to get that message across. So, David, for mere mortals like me, can you then also put this in the context of the Whipple procedure? So, where these forms of treatment sit within surgery or the and which less than 10% of people that have pancreatic cancer can actually receive surgery, but just put some context around that for our listeners, yeah. if you could. So let's first accept that at the time people are diagnosed, only one in five will have operable disease. And the other four out of five, either it's already spread or it's so locally large and attached to blood vessels, it can't be removed. And even if it could it's already programmed to do bad things and just removing won't help you. But for the one in five, surgery remains the only cure we know. Everything else we have in our toolbox keeps people alive for longer but doesn't cure them. So the Whipple's procedure is still the cornerstone of cure. The challenge is to get more people into that box than the current one in five. And there are strategies to take people who aren't initially operable but haven't spread and change the nature of the tumour so it then shrinks and becomes operable and therefore get a larger pool of people into that operable, curable group. But yet I have to be honest and say that even in the curable group, 
not everybody is cured by the surgery. So there's lots of other strategies required to get beyond the current. Well, you know, the currently with the Whipple's procedure, it's about 20% of people who are alive at five years. But many of us at a meeting, international meeting two years ago, heard a presentation that showed that 50% of patients were alive at three years. We're still waiting to see the final five and 10-year outcome of that particular study. But many people like me were nearly moved to tears to see that degree of success because it's so far outstrips anything we'd heard before. And even if it's half as good as it appeared to be at that presentation, that's really a major step forward for the surgical group. The challenge for people like me is how many more of that non-surgical group can we move in that direction? So that's one thing. And then the other is taking the people with very specialised genetics for which we have a different toolkit, which are called the inherited or BRCA cancers, and they seem to have a uniquely chemosensitive disease, unlike most of the other pancreas cancer patients. And there are other molecular strategies for keeping them preserving the benefit they get from chemotherapy. So that's a separate group. So there's there's a lot of train tracks coming out of the station at the moment, and they're all very interesting. And which one of them will make the biggest impact is not at all clear right now. But they all will have some impact. We've gone from 5% to 10%. Doesn't sound great. We've doubled. And that's with bad drugs and less understanding than we've got now. So the benchmark, it's not an unreasonable benchmark to look for a doubling again somewhere in five to ten years from now. Not unreasonable at all, and none of us will be satisfied or happy with 40%. We want to be right next to our breast and colon cancer colleagues very quickly, but we know we've got a much tougher scientific challenge than colon and breast cancer. Although that was pretty challenging when the people started to make inroads also. So I by no means minimise the, the incredible success and all we need to do is devote the same resources and brain power across the world that was marshalled for breast and colon cancer. We can get there. You've just spoken about funding and the importance of funding. You are very heavily tied with clinical research at UNSW and our universities lead the way in terms of clinical research, not just in pancreatic cancer, but all forms of medical and research. What impact do you think that the current cuts to university funding as well as reduction in staff across all sectors will have on research such as pancreatic cancer and all clinical research in Australia? So we're talking beyond cancer. We're talking diabetes, obesity, the major health challenges of our society. I'm literally petrified. 
I believe that we are about to destroy a whole generation of the future leaders of science of tomorrow. We are going to, we are ripping the heart out of our university and the casualties are not the senior people, although it's going to be them soon, but the casualties right now are the young researchers and the mid-career researchers and they're in deep trouble because our universities are in deep trouble and we won't notice the difference now. We're all productive. We've got papers coming out. It's all great. But the future, the papers and the breakthroughs of five and ten years from now may not happen unless something changes. If there's not a recognition of a Marshall Plan-like approach to refloating universities, if that does not happen in the next two years, I know that five and ten years from now, we're going to deeply regret that we didn't do it. And I'm talking solar energy, I'm talking water, and I'm talking every aspect of medicine. I actually have to beg to differ with you on this, David, because this morning it was announced that by the middle of next year, roughly 15,000 university academics across Australia will have lost their jobs. I think that we're going to feel the pressure of this a lot sooner than what people think that is going to be coming. I don't think this will be felt in the decade to come. You and your colleagues in the legislature to speak up because we've self-interested. They'll say, oh, look, they're just feathering their nest, just trying to keep all these people together. We need legislators and the public to say, this isn't right. We can't allow this to atrophy and die. The future of this country is in research and science. It's, it's not just digging stuff out of the ground. It's actually converting the stuff that comes out of the ground into finished, sophisticated products that is our future. You know, we have had an above-average scientific per population. We've pushed out more patents and groundbreaking research than almost any other country of our size, we've punched above our weight. We won't be punching above our weight in five years' time if something isn't done. I couldn't agree with you anymore, David, and I've been quite outspoken about the implications of what these cuts have been. As a former university academic, before I went into politics, I think education is one of the single most important things anyone can have access to to transform their lives and research. As you've identified, Australia punches above its weight in terms of research and it's a huge part in terms of innovating and bringing forward our country across all fields. So, David, going back to pancreatic cancer, though, if there was one thing you wish people knew about pancreatic cancer that most do not, what would that be? I think it would be that it is potentially curable. I think almost everybody that, oh, no, you've got pancreas cancer. That's it. I wish people would realise it is potentially curable and there are things we can do even for those who aren't curable. That's probably it. Right? I, you know, I haven't thought about this much because you hit me with that question with zero warning. But that's the best I can come up with at, as a reflex, 
is that you need to know there's two things anybody who gets that diagnosis or one of their uh, significant people gets that diagnosis is there are things we can do. People, you know, say, how do you get to do this every day? If my motivation was cure, it would be hard to get through every day. But it's not. It's about making the journey the most comfortable and the most useful and the most quality journey I can possibly make it. And I don't always succeed, but that's what it's about. So it's about the hope, right? It's about the hope and the journey. That's the one thing that you wish. It yes, isn't all doom and gloom. There is hope and there is a process and a journey. There's hope for cure. And when there's not cure, there's still hope for quality of time and even indeed for many people prolongation of time beyond what no treatment would mean. And we're getting there. We're getting there in the percentage alive at five years. We're also getting there in the percentage whose disease is controlled for a meaningful period of time is increasing. So they're the things that motivate me. And working with superb preclinical scientists who give me hope for the future that allow me to go to work every day and look my patients in the eye and say, new things are happening. Wonderful. David, now, before you go, there are three questions we ask every single guest that comes onto Coogee Voice. They're incredibly important questions. You have to declare your favourite beach in the eastern suburbs, the best place to buy coffee, and where sells the best hamburgers. Go. Right. Okay. So um, my favourite beach is, you know, sorry to be boring, but it's Bondi. It's just such an iconic place, although I love going to Tamarama and Bronte and similar places, but at the end of the day, Bondi is it. So that's the beach. The second coffee, ah, now I have a secret little place that I'm not going to tell you about. No, I am. It's a, a little place called Vernon Street Cafe, which is on Edgecliff Road, run by George, ask for George, and makes, for me, a uniquely perfect blend because it's not too bitter. It's just the perfect, and neither is it too sort of light and meaningless. It's just, it's a very smooth, very European blend. So that's that's the next one. But really, a number of the other places I go to are going to be deeply offended that they didn't get a Guernsey as well. But that's life. Um, but I try to go to lots of places. And the third was hamburgers. You know, I haven't eaten a good hamburger in a long time since the one that was in Darlinghurst closed. Uh, what's it called? It was about a decade ago that they closed. Um, I can't name a current top hamburger place, to be really honest, but if you could give me a list of some of your other guests' recommendations, I promise to go and try them in order over the next two weeks. And then I'll email you with which one of them I thought was the best. So the probably the top of the list you'll need to go and try is Out of the Blue on Clovelly Road. And if you are open to having Portuguese chicken-style burgers, Little L's at Coogee. Okay, got it. I, I'll, I <laughs> promise to be there within two weeks. And I'm going to go and see George and ask for a Goldstein. 
That's it. That's it. Go ahead. David. He only knows me as David. Okay. <laughs> David, thank you so much for joining us on Coogee Voice for this special episode. It's been a pleasure having you, and I'm sure that our listeners are going to have a wonderful time learning about pancreatic cancer. All right. Thank you very much, and keep up the good work in the legislature. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. What an informative chat. One of the key takeaways for me is that we should be talking more about our poo. So if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Goldstein's research, head to the show notes. There's a link to his work. You've been listening to Coogee Voice. Mm-hmm.